0: Welcome to Tactical Talk, this is Anne Khan. Today the topic of our show is, Should Canada Join China's Belt and Road Initiative? Today the guest of our show is Matthew Ert, who is a Canadian journalist and also the editor-in-chief at the thecanadianpatriot.org. Welcome to our show, Matthew Ert, this is Anne Khan. It's a pleasure to have you on Tactical Talk.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, Matthew, let's get to the first question. Quickly, for our viewers, explain to us what is China's Belt and Road Initiative.
1: Well, uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative is the name that was given in September 2013 by President Xi Jinping to the grand design uh, that Xi Jinping and his collaborators had uh, organized, not only to export the China model of development to its neighbors around the world, from the Middle East, Europe, Africa, but also North America. This is a it's a it's a unifying idea that gives meaning and coherence to the hundreds or even thousands of infrastructure projects, cultural exchange projects uh, that have been undertaken by China to bring high technology, infrastructure, rail, energy grids, schools, and hospitals, which include soft infrastructure to the various countries uh which essentially revives the old silk road idea that was active 2000 years ago that united much much of the roman empire through the middle east through persia into this into china with uh, branches into africa so this is something which has become now a, a driving force uh internationally over the past 5 years and has represented an alternative to the what formerly was the monopolized structures of banking, finance, and economics that were that were controlled by Wall Street in the city of London for many, many decades since World War II. So now for the first time, there is a, uh, an alternative approach to thinking about nations, economics, the future, which China and, and some of its core collaborators, including Russia and some others in Pakistan, have uh, have provided.
0: Uh, Matthew, what does China's Belt and Road offer to the world? Well,
1: I think that at this point, the the world is desperate for real development. Uh, back in 1945, there were promises that were made uh, and a lot of expectations when the Bretton Woods system was set up under the the agenda of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1944. So, when the IMF, the World Bank, the United Nations uh, were were set up to organize the post-war world. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who died in 1945 before he could actually accomplish his vision, had a very different view of what these institutions would do in opposition to people like uh, Winston Churchill or many of the Anglo-American uh, imperialists embedded in the United States bureaucracy and banking system at, at the time that he lived. Now, Roosevelt originally wanted to take his war on Wall Street that he waged throughout the 1930s, bring regulation, regulation putting thousands of bankers in jail, uh, which brought about the New Deal, doing things like Glass-Steagall, which separated uh, commercial banking from uh, investment banking. He wanted to take these these and the examples of real infrastructure building that were the New Deal, which gave the United States the ability to enter into World War II and put down the Hitler Beast, which was being funded by the city of London and Wall Street. He wanted to take that, uh, that... That machine for war that was created to stop world, the, you know, Hitler, um, who again was financed by, uh, his enemies in London and his own government and take that development model and export that to the world, to former colonized uh, nations that had suffered under the British Empire. So the IMF, the World Bank were originally designed to per- create and emit that sort of long-term credit for infrastructure development with the United States aiding and supporting that process of creating win-win collaboration through major uh, technological uh, investments uh, and, and thus exporting its own successes of the New Deal to poorer countries so that they could stand on their own two feet, creating a world where every country would be both independent but also uh, in collaboration with its neighbors. That was in opposition again, uh, contrary to what many of the history books say, that was in opposition to what Winston Churchill had in mind as a defender of the old British system. There's documentation of fights between uh, Churchill and Roosevelt on this issue, but Roosevelt died, and the IMF, the World Bank, instead of being used as he wished, became infested um, with imperialists, with agents who really wanted to just create a neo colonial system to repackage the old British ways under a new Anglo-American guise. With the illusion of development, but really what happened over the past 60, 70 years, where every, every time a country receives aid from the IMF or the World Bank or the US aid, instead of it actually going to building these countries up, it has been tied to conditionalities, um, all sorts of tricks that have made these countries intent, by the intention of those emitting the, the, the loans, these countries have been made more debt enslaved, less developed, more corrupt, um, each time this has occurred over 40 years. So now China is doing something which looks a lot like what Franklin Delano Roosevelt intended. But this time they have—they're not just one country going at this this imperialist order controlled by by London and Wall Street. You have now an alliance of countries throughout Eurasia, especially, but also many countries even in the transatlantic are beginning to break away, um, as we've seen with the election of the Italian, uh, the new Italian government who is very much in favor of work bringing Italy into an alliance with the Belt and Road. Uh, Many countries in South America, the new Mexican government is very much in favor of this and even Donald Trump has demonstrated a willingness to work with China and with Russia uh, and in so doing breaking the United States out of its, uh, this structure of Anglo-American controls that have been embedded since John F. Kennedy's assassination. So there's a there's a whole new dynamic um, spreading around the world right now where real investments are being introduced by China especially but other countries uh where there's no conditionalities. Countries in Africa are actually seeing that the the funds that are being invested by China are going towards building high-speed rail, building electrified rail. The longest in the world are, are being created already um, throughout Africa by China. Much so you you have what what Xi Jinping has called a win-win Um, set up where countries can both participate in benefiting themselves by by building honest business relationships and also benefit their neighbors so china receives they desperately need resources so they receive that but at the same time they build up the capabilities in the countries that they're doing business with and also creating um whole cadres and, and generations of engineers and specialists in nairobi in ethiopia in many South American countries, so that they're they're not just going there and implanting their skill sets and flooding the markets with cheap goods from China. They're actually going and creating the means of production, and the, and that means also the cognitive the cognitive means of production, which has been something that has been banned by Belgium, French, British, and every imperialist order that's ever existed. Never permits for the cognitive and creative developments of those victim populations who they seek to exploit for cheap resources. So it's a very different system than what much of the media has been letting on, but that's what I would say that how the world benefits, um, in a few words, from the Belt and Road Initiative
0: currently. Um, Matthew, let's get to a very important question. From which route could or should China's Belt and Road reach Canada?
1: Okay, for that, for that I would say on two levels, we have the route of the maritime Silk Road, uh, which deals with the, um, the sea-based, uh, shipping lake routes that are now opening up around the Straits of Malacca, all the way around, uh, China into Africa. Um, in terms of North America, which is increasingly, uh, being embraced by the Silk Road process, um, what we have is the Pacific Gateway the Asia-Pacific gateway in British Columbia, which is the westernmost province in in Canada, which is about two days closer um, than any other shipping port on the west coast of North America entirely to China. So it's always been, for all of the century, a strategic entry point for goods, forestry products, minerals, people, exchange, you name it, uh, between North America and China. So strategically, that's one element of the ports, the rail, and other things that need to be vastly expanded in um, in Canada, in British Columbia specifically, in order to, to more ingrain ourselves into that new alternative process of the Silk Road, which we want to see coming uh, to Canada more and more as the current system that currently governs our world collapses. And by that, I'm talking about the geopolitical, military, and banking structures that control uh, the transatlantic str- system centered in wall street and in london so you have the maritime silk road entry point which canada must play a much more active role in and you have what on another level uh, china has called the polar silk road in a in a white paper published in january of 2018 the chinese government promoted a expanding this into north america through the arctic um with the polar the polar silk road which uh involves again arctic shipping but it also involves things like uh bringing rail into the arctic through alaska which we know that trump is the u.s president donald trump is not against these sorts of things there's a lot of opposition to this way of thinking but there's a lot of uh favor to it as well uh there's a big battle happening inside of the structures the the governance structures of the united states that's been underway for the past uh, two years especially um Mm -hmm and we know that a big patriotic faction centered around Donald Trump's networks are in favor of moving the U.S. into an alliance with China and with Russia. So if you can get that Bering Strait rail tunnel, which has been on the books for many decades, the Schiller Institute, which I I and the Canadian patriot that I, I work with uh, magazine are very much inspired by, if we can get that process of bringing that rail through the Bering Strait into the Arctic, through Alaska, into the Yukon, all of a sudden you would have branching points to bring uh, belt and road projects uh, that would open up new science cities, new development corridors throughout the entirety of Canada down to the continent. Um, there's many projects that have been um, collecting dust through lack of vision for many decades. High-speed projects for rail have been on the books and at various times almost became realized and then got shut down connecting Montreal to Toronto, Windsor, down to New York. There's Currently the problem is that there's Again, no vision and no system in place in the West to permit for long-term thinking for things like high-speed or magnetic levitation rail, which China has been leading in in building massively over the past few, few, especially two decades. Um, Canada currently has zero high-speed rail. The United States has hardly any. Um, What it does have would barely qualify for high-speed if you were actually to go to China and compare the two, or to Japan, for example. Um, we have zero, though, in Canada, and, and this is something which many people would like to see brought into our uh, our world, which China is more than willing to help us do if we could gain a little bit of uh, humility and a little bit of common sense to see where the future is really pushing us. So I would say on those two levels, Maritime Silk Road, Asia Pacific Gateway, you've got the Polar Silk Road, which is going to increasingly become a topic of, of national discussion, especially as the current financial system that we're stuck in continues to melt down and and an alternative will be more uh, needed. And then on something more, these are geographical, though, and I would say more than geographical, the spirit of the Silk Road and the Obor, it it really centers around uh, scientific and technological progress, the, the question of creativity, and for that, I would say Canada could also play a very great contributing role on sharing discoveries and science on space technology on nuclear science, which Canada has a lot of capabilities on. We're already building, um, many nuclear reactors have been built uh, by Canadian expertise in Asia. We're not building any here. (laughs) We haven't built any for many decades in North America, but in Asia there is a demand for real growth and uh, real competent energy sources. So nuclear is another uh, domain. And basic uh, technology, these are domains of the mind that will, will be the most strategic in terms of giving a spirit and a substance behind the infrastructure that will be developed um, throughout this process, so I would say on those two, on those three levels, Arctic, maritime, um, scientific, cultural exchange, uh, these are places that Canada should and could um, play a, a very vital role in the Silk Road. I would say, though, on one thing. There is a total media blackout, though most people in Canada are very unfamiliar with the Belt and Road. There is not much discussion um, happening in an official status, and what we do have happening in terms of discussions between Canada-China relations on business and economics, it really deals with um, a consumer monetarist approach to it. How many ski, uh, how many jackets can Canada buy from China? How many? Um, it, Shoes can we buy this year for our, uh, our department stores? Uh, you, you, you don't tend to have a very strong idea of the actual driving role of infrastructure and nation building that you have with the discussions around the BRICS countries and Eurasia. There, there's much more of that discussion happening in, in Canada. There is not so much of that. We're very much, the discussion is very, the narrative is very much filtered to consumer goods and consumerism, uh, modes of, of, thinking. And, and that's that's got to change.
0: Um, Matthew, I was wondering, has there been any official or unofficial talks between the Canadian and Chinese government regarding the Belt and Road Initiative?
1: There has not been as much as there should have been by now. Um, like I said, there has been... Canada is currently caught between sort of two worlds and the old order which... Very much controls much of the the deep state of Canada, the 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 Privy Council Office, the uh, the the Prime Minister's Office, which is the unelected sort of seat of policy controls behind and above the the official parliamentary procedures that we see on t- on uh, on television. Um, there's been a, a very tight, desperate attempt to hold on to the old, obsolete order, um, which was, you know active until 2013-14 as the dominant force. So there there has been a lot of intimidation, a lot of attempts to sort of iron out or shut up uh these sorts of discussions from official uh political layers. However, we have had um, in 2016 there was a, a business delegation affiliated with the Brit- the the British Columbian government which did go to the Guangdong province of China and signed a memorandum of understanding. Guangdong being the sister uh, province to the, to British Columbia, sister city, uh, to Vancouver. And, um, this memorandum of understanding was, was very good and a good start, uh, arranging to co- collaborate around a uh, Belt and Road Initiative projects, energy, the, the Pacific Gateway, um, the Asia Pacific Gateway, um, in British Columbia. So you, you did have that as a starting point and you have had Lone members of Parliament here and there, uh, members of the, the legislative assemblies on the provincial level, at various times, come out speaking well and speaking in a desirous way of wishing that Canada could work with China on these great projects that are that are defining our future. But in terms of anything more official coming from our government, so far, we have not seen anything yet. Um, as I said, there is a, a large media blackout, an institutional blackout so far. Which is not going to hold on forever. I mean, this is the the reality of what the Belt and Road represents is increasingly breaking through the uh, the attempted uh, veils that are being kept in front of people's eyes to keep them looking at TV or, or or social media, which doesn't deal with or video games or drugs. There's a lot of distractions right now for people to keep them from looking at reality. But that those are breaking, and so I think that what we're going to see. Especially as the United States liberates itself more and more um, from the controls of the Anglo-American elite, uh, you know the intelligence agencies, the CIA, the FBI, that have been branches of this oligarchical system. So as this liberation of the true essence of the United States continues, um, and the United States starts acting more and more like a sovereign country and not as the uh, the dumb giant. Enforcing the will of the the oligarchy around the country as this this uh, you know stupid stupid beast that just clubs countries like Libya or Iraq into submission, but rather as a real country that looks out for its own its own true interests. As this continues to happen, you're going to have more openings in Canada as well. So I think that the future in this from the standpoint is very important to look at as something relatively predictable. We know that the current banking system is not going to last much longer. It's been surviving off of uh, basically bailouts for the past nine years or longer. And the, the entire sum of derivatives of speculative financial instruments that people have been led to believe is our economy over the past 25 years, as those continue to disintegrate and people realize that, oh, this is actually worthless. This is just, these were just, fanciful dreams not tied to any real wealth in society, that in the world that we live in. It's just purely numbers on a computer screen um, being fed by cocaine-sniffing uh, bankers. As, as this is realized, then people will, and are already, they will continue to look for alternative real means of surviving and, and sustaining their countries and their, their children and families into the future which is where the Belt and Road, the BRICS, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, Alliance will be coming in increasingly handy. And again, I think that Canada will be playing a very vital role in that because we have, um, we just have so much to offer. I mean, Canada has a huge set of potential resources, mental, spiritual, physical, uh, that could do a lot of good for humanity. And that has got to be realized uh, sooner than later. But definitely British Columbia... Is uh, has taken the the best lead I would say so far in actually um, acting on it's a, a real policy of working with the the new Silk Road. Um, more has
0: to come, Matthew. Let's get to the last question: How could China's Belt and Road Initiative benefit Canada?
1: On a multitude of levels, but I would say. Um, it's become increasingly evident in the past months that the North American Free Trade Agreement that had dominated the Canadian and United States and Mexican economies uh, is dead. The uh, there is a, a return, and and rightfully so, to protectionism, though it could be abused. But nonetheless, the the, the United States has taken a lead at actually intending. And acting on a policy of rebuilding the lost manufacturing and productive base by um, reintroducing protective tariffs that allow for the, the protection of local industries, agriculture and other things. It started with aluminum and steel. It's going to extend into automotive and other things, undoubtedly, and other, other products. Um, this has forced retaliatory measures from the Canadian government um, as well as the European governments. Now, a lot of people are saying that this is a bad thing, and certainly this could do some harm if we don't begin to actually take this as a lesson for what we should be doing, which is um, building full-spectrum economies, which can both sustain our own people in Europe. I mean, European countries should never have gone into a Maastricht, Maastricht Treaty um, policy to create the euro and, and essentially undermine and undo... The sovereignty of the nations of Europe in the early 90s. That happened at the same time that the NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, was doing the same thing to create um, a a structure of of controls where nations would not play any role in the economy in North America, just like in Europe. It would just be a private financial power that would do that, and nations' rights to. Uh, protect their people and their interests would be made illegal under the rules of the World Trade Organization that had uh, created NAFTA and and the Euro. So those people who had been promoting that always knew that it wasn't going to work for the benefit of the nations. It was always designed, every time this policy of uh, absolute free trade speculation, monetarism had been imposed onto countries and onto the elite's thinking, the effects have always been the self-destruction of those countries and the increasing dependence on those victim countries to rely on a small network of monopolies that control the resources and that control the means of production. So, and also this, under NAFTA, this has induced us to be also addicted to cheap labor increasingly from, as we exported our factories, we lost our manufacturing bases in uh, Canada, the United States, we lost them and they were exported to places like Mexico or other poor countries where the labor would be cheap and the technology would thus be also cheaper than it would be here. The cost of the quality of the minds of the people producing would be lower and they couldn't even consume what they produced in Mexico. So the whole thing was set up to be a a failure. It was for that purpose um, somebody who I I admire very much, uh, Dennis Small, who's an editor for the Executive Intelligence Review, has made the point that it's not that globalization or NAFTA was a failure, it's that it was a success for those who actually crafted and promoted it. Now that's collapsing. That whole structure of rules of the game of monetarism are now melting down. So that would be bad if we had no alternative, the, because obviously we don't produce for ourselves. If every country does go into isolationism, that's not good, because now Canada has this excess production that we rely on, I mean, we have to sell a lot of our, our forestry, our lumber to the United States, our, our automotives, our, a lot of things have to be sold for us to gain the revenue to sustain our, our society if that just disappears then yeah we we will we will suffer badly however that's with the idea that we don't have an alternative if we get back onto a proper track which the belt and road initiative provides of real nation building where we're looking to our our neighbors as countries that all have the right to their own development pathways then we could begin to actually rebuild our, our our manufacturing base, but with newer and more advanced technologies, not just what we had in the 80s or 70s, but actually cutting edge 21st century technologies. Um, this would revive our outlook for the future, which is very much lost. If you go to most of the, the 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 communities across Canada, there is not a very strong optimism, especially from young people, about what the future looks like. If people were given a sense that okay, we actually can we have opportunities to build skill sets to create a nation for not only ourselves, but our, our children, our grandchildren, and those who will, be, who will come beyond by, uh, by, by connecting high-speed rail from the Maritimes, from Nova Scotia, through the major cities of Montreal, Toronto, the prairies, all the way to Vancouver and up into the Arctic. And if we could open up the door for newer phases of development of new, new cities... China has built hundreds of cities already brand new cities Canada and the West has built no new cities for well over fifty years. So if we can get back to the idea of building advanced cutting edge cities that are centered around uh, not just not just exploiting a resource and then just having a ghost city as we ha- have seen here and there, uh, like in Alberta with Fort McMurray, there's no purpose for that city to exist except to exploit the the gas. Uh, in the oil sands, or not the gas, but to exploit, exploit the resources in the oil sands. And when those will be tapped, there will be no purpose for the city. But no, we need to have an idea of real cities once again. Um, so I think the benefits to Canada are manifold. They're, they're, we obviously have a bounty of potential that's untapped throughout the entirety of the Arctic. All of the elements of the periodic table are, are there and available but there's no roads, no rail for much of it. And China's Belt and Road and the countries in Africa that are doing business with China that want to develop, countries in Asia, in, in uh, South America, who want to develop would benefit immensely by having access to this bounty of resources. And so would we in Canada. We would also be able to use these things to build the steel, the concrete, the other things that we need, we need uh, to both upgrade our collapsing infrastructure because I, 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 know, I know that you uh, you don't live anywhere near... North America, but uh, in uh, the United States and Canada, our infrastructure has been left to to really rot, and it's a real crisis. Much of it is, much of our roads, our water systems, our electricity grids are over 60, 70 years of age. Um, It would take trillions of dollars just to bring these things up to safety standards, let alone actually introduce new improvements. So these are all things that have to be done, and they will be done, If we can liberate ourselves from this short-term, profit-first, monetarist thinking, which has been dominating our schools and our our business practices for so long, and return back to what I said at the beginning, Franklin Roosevelt um, and those people who lived in his time in the 1930s, 40s, into the 50s, largely had a better conception of, which is that real wealth comes from thinking about multiple generations into the future – and, and Xi Jinping, you know, in the, in the recent speech that he gave at the BRICS, the BRICS summit uh, just a, a week and a half ago, was very good, where he said that, you know, the law of the jungle where the strong prey upon the weak and zero-sum game are rejected, peace and development, win-win cooperation have become the aspiration of all peoples. Uh, that is very true. Uh, real wealth is not located in just stealing from your neighbor. It's not located in just trying to have impose the will of the stronger on the weaker. It is really Im- located in creating not just a bigger pie in quantity but a better quality of pie and a bigger pie all the time with no expectations that there could be any necessary limits to the progress and improvement of human society in the universe. Um, a, an aspect of China's policy, I would just throw that in, this in now because Canada would play a, a very good role in this, would be it is um, expanding its understanding into the microcosm, into the structure of the atom, the, the, the most advanced fusion energy research projects that are the next cutting-edge uh, stage of human development in energy use. Those are happening in China, and also on the macro level, the, the yet-to-be-discovered domains of human space exploration um, are being led by China as well, and, and other countries in the West can definitely learn a lot to expand our understanding, and, and also understand what our role is within this developing universe. China has a, a program of, of landing on the far side of the moon very soon this year. Um, there's discussions now of serious uh, Mars colonization from the Russian government. Um, you've got many, many things happening. Terror, discussions on terraforming. How do you uh, transform the, the geophysical environment of a desert into a, a green lush area, which could have interplanetary effects as well, which could benefit our, our great-grandchildren in immense ways and expand the idea of what human beings actually are as a, a species of creative reason as, again, the, the Schiller Institute and many of its collaborators around the world have been promoting. And Xi Jinping and, and Vladimir Putin have indicated to me in l- reading their, their speeches and looking at their policies over the past years that they have a very good understanding of this And increasingly, many other countries in Pakistan, India uh, are are being brought into that coherence and even in Europe and North America. So I think that this is this is a very good thing across the board. And there's a lot of very good reasons to be very hopeful for the future, uh, for Canada and the world. And uh, and I would say for anybody uh, wanting to know a little bit more about the Canadian involvement in this, they can go to the Canadian Patriot website as well.
0: Thanks so much, Matthew Erick, for being on Tactical Talk. It was a pleasure having you.
1: Thank you for letting me have uh, this platform. Take care.
0: This was Matthew Eric, a Canadian journalist and also the editor-in-chief at the CanadianPatriot.org. We were discussing should Canada join China's Belt and Road Initiative. Until the next episode of Tactical Talk, this is Anne Khan. Take care.